Children are being dismissed. Let's uh, open our Bibles uh, this morning to the book of Genesis. Chapter 28. Taking a look uh, this morning, Lord willing, at verses 10 through 15. The title of our message this morning is A Stairway to Heaven, Part 1. That's probably the closest you'll hear to Led Zeppelin being quoted in this church. God is continuing to work as we move through our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. God is raising up a nation the nation of Israel. He has dealt with Abraham to get the nation off the ground, so to speak. Then he began to deal with Abraham's son Isaac, and now he's dealing with Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob, as we pick up the story um, this morning, is in the process of fleeing Canaan, going up north to a place called Haran, presumably to find a wife, but that's really not the whole story. The story is his brother Esau wants to kill him because Esau believes that he has been cheated from of the birthright back in the prior chapter. So we're kind of at a point where he is in flight, Jacob is, and God uses this opportunity to reveal more of himself and his program to Jacob. It is interesting to me that God so frequently reveals things to us, not during times of comfort and prosperity, but during times of adversity. It's during times of adversity that we have a tendency to pay a little bit more attention to God. We're a bit more open to the things of God. And so if you find yourself uh, today, this morning, in a season of your life where there's a a lot of adversity taking place, uh, consider yourself blessed because now you're in a position of humility, spiritual openness, And you'd be surprised at some of the things God will begin to show you in that valley. This is the kind of thing that's happening with Jacob. So here is sort of a larger outline of verses 10 through 22. We're not going to be able to, unfortunately, get through all of that today. But we can try to get through the first five or six verses, Lord willing. First of all, notice the circumstances, verses 10 through 12. We have a journey, we have a place, and we have a dream. Notice uh, the, the journey. Genesis 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went to Haran. Where is Beersheba? There it is. And where is uh, Haran? It would be that circle up north. It's a journey of about 450 miles. Sometimes we, in the Bible, read about they went here and they went there. 
and we kind of transport 21st century traveling luxuries back in time. You know, they didn't go by car. <laughs> they didn't go by taxi cab. Uh, this was an arduous, difficult journey. You'll notice um, how real the Bible portrays things. Beersheba, Haran. Uh, later we're going to learn about a place called Bethel, which means house of God. Real people with real problems in real places in real-time geography. That, that's your Bible. The Bible is not just a book of uh, spiritual insights that someone put together. You're dealing with history as it actually transpired. And God used these historical events to reveal himself to the human race. We have a journey and then we have uh, sort of a, a stop, if you will, in a place called Bethel. You'll notice verse 11. It says he came to a certain place. And spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. Now later this place that he is at, if you look at verse 19, is a place that's going to be named Bethel, house of God. From uh, Bayet in Hebrew, house El God, putting it together. Bethel, house of God, because of the, it's going to be named that because of the gravity of the revelation that Jacob is about to receive here. It's uh, not a new place when we study the story of Abraham. You might recall that Abraham himself sojourned there all the way back in Genesis 12 and verse 8. It says, then he, that's Abram, proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east and there built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So it's sort of interesting how God now takes Jacob and brings him to the exact place that his grandfather Abram, who later became Abraham, sojourned. It's kind of interesting to me how these places take on great significance because these were places where the Lord did a work. The Lord involved himself in great revelation to these patriarchs as he is forming what we today know as the nation of Israel. Now, verse 11 has always bothered me because it looks like he used a rock of some kind as a pillow. I mean, I see the my pillow guy on TV all the time, and I don't think he's selling rocks. But it says here he took one of his stones, or he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down on that place. And that used to always bother me because, I mean, obviously the Bible can't be true. Nobody uses a rock for a pillow. That would be very uncomfortable. Well, you'd be, you're, you'll probably be relieved to know as I was relieved to know that that's not really what it says in Hebrew. This is where knowledge of Hebrew helps because your average person reads this and they just dismiss it as crazy talk because of poor translation. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his uh, Genesis commentary indicates, quote, the next thing he did, Jacob, was he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, which has been misunderstood to mean that he used it as a pillow. But a stone would make a rather uncomfortable pillow. Amen to that. The Hebrew literally reads at his head, not under his head. It means the stone was placed at his head as was the case with Saul's spear being above his head. 1 Samuel 26 verse 7 where the same terminology is used. And then he lay down in that place to sleep. So the stone was more over his head than it was under his head. But the English translation gives you the impression that he used it as a pillow and you have to sort of think your way through that or else you'll just dismiss this as some sort of wild, wild tale. And as he's sleeping, he has a dream. And the dream is recorded in verse 12. It says, he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So now, as far as I can tell, this is the first dream the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had. Abraham never had a dream, to my knowledge. Isaac never had a dream. Jacob, though, actually has um, a dream. The only person I know of that's actually had a dream prior to this event, is in the Abraham story. It was a man named Abimelech, who was not one of the patriarchs. Genesis 20, verse 3 says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream. This is when he had taken Sarah into his harem, so to speak. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said, Behold, you are a dead man. How would you like that? As a dream from God. Everybody wants to have some kind of dream from God. I don't know if I would want one. Particularly one that begins with, you're a dead man. Because of the woman who, whom you have taken, for she is married. So he was as good as dead if he didn't correct the situation. Because he was on the wrong side of the blessings and cursings of the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. Do you take those literally? I sure do. Abimelech had a dream about how literal they were. You're about to die if you don't fix this. So that, other than that, that's the only dream I know of. And now Jacob is sort of thrust into prominence because he has a dream also. Abraham didn't, Isaac didn't, but Jacob has this dream. And what, what did he see in this dream? He saw a ladder that was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. You say, well, you entitled your sermon Stairway to Heaven, but this says a ladder. So which is it, Pastor? Back to Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He says, in the dream, Jacob saw something before him. And behold, a ladder. The Hebrew word for ladder here is sulam, a hapax legomenot. What's a hapax legomenot? No, I'm not speaking in tongues here. 
hapax means once, legomenon means spoken. It's a word that's used only here in the Bible. It's used once and only once here. That's called a hapax legomena. So what he actually saw was a ladder. But this hapax legomena indicates, this word Hebrew, it was not a ladder in the modern sense of the term, but has the meaning of a stairway. Now, I have a, a ladder in my house. You pull down the garage and this kind of, uh, there's a door up there to get into the attic and this ladder comes down and, you know, my wife was very worried that our Christmas tree is still up and it's now February. <laughs> we have this kind of plastic Christmas tree. I mean, I know, I, there's a lot of things in life that bother me, but I, that kind of thing doesn't bother me. My philosophy is just leave the tree up and there's one less thing we have to do next year. <laughs> but she's very worried, so we're taking it apart and going up and down, you know, this, this ladder. And that's sort of what I think about with this ladder. But, but really it wasn't a ladder. It was a stairway. In the dream, Jacob saw something before him. Behold, a ladder. The Hebrew word for ladder is sulam, a hapax legomena. It was a ladder in the, it was not a ladder in the modern sense of the term, but it has the meaning of a stairway. Indeed, a stairway to heaven. Led Zeppelin right there. It was set upon the earth, which is where Jacob was, and reached to heaven where God was. The ladder pictured Jacob having access to heaven. Think of a a stairway connecting the earth to heaven. That's what he saw. And as he looked carefully in this dream, he saw angels ascending and descending on this stairway. Now, this is interesting because it indicates in our doctrine of angelology, which we've taught here In Sunday school, you could access our sermon archives if you're interested in this, that angels, although they are there to help those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1 verse 14 says that, angels are not omnipresent, meaning they're not everywhere at once. I mean, if they were everywhere at once, they wouldn't have to go up and down a stairway. They would already be where they're supposed to go. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's also omniscient. He knows everything. He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But angels are limited. They're creatures. Creatures that God himself brought into existence. And I bring this up because we're living in a, a culture that's gone sort of angel mania. Uh, everybody wants to talk to an angel. I remember the the show, remember that? Michael Landon, I think, was in it, Touched by an Angel. And everybody was talking about angels and guardian angels, and I want to contact my angel. Is there an angel that, that sits in, in guard and guards me? If so, what's his name? And can I talk to him? Um, And when we get like that, we're sort of moving into the Colossian heresy where the Colossian church was doing this kind of thing. 
they were taking Jesus, who is the creator and the redeemer, and they were reducing him to the level of an angel. And supposedly he as an angel created another angel who then created another angel. And over the course of time, people become sort of infatuated with angels. And the whole book of Colossians is written to explain that Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is the creator of the angels. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator and the redeemer. And why in the world would I want to talk to an angel when I can talk to God himself? I mean, if God is the boss, why would I want to talk to a subservient? And so what happens with us is we confuse many times the creation with the created thing. Paul at the end, at the end of Romans 1 says that. That's what sin, sinful people do. We, we have a tendency to worship things that ought not to be worshipped. Don't become intoxicated and infatuated with angels. Swear your allegiance and your mind to the one who created the angels. God himself, who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. God doesn't have to go up and down a staircase because he's already up the staircase before he starts. He's omnipresent. And yet these angels are going up and down the staircase. They're ascending and descending. They're, they're, they're limited beings. So we have this, uh, this um, stairway to heaven, if you will. And there's an interesting point that's made here about the land of Israel. The land of Israel that Jacob is now leaving to go to Haran is a big deal as far as God is concerned. That land belongs to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's only when Jacob leaves the land that angels are mentioned. And it's only when he returns to the land, I think in Genesis 32, that the angels are mentioned. So the angelic manifestation brackets in the Jacob account the land of Israel. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, Furthermore, and behold, the angels... Of God. In the book of Genesis, the phrase, the angels of God, is found only twice. Here, Genesis 28, and in Genesis 32, verse 1. It is significant as to the circumstances when it, the phrase, angels of the Lord, appears. Here in verse 12, the angels of God are mentioned as Jacob departs from the land. In chapter 32, verse 1, they appear again as Jacob is returning to the land. Translation, the land of Israel is a big deal as far as God is concerned. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, where God promised the physical descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, that they would possess, in God's timing, a piece of real estate that extends all the way from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq. 
It will extend from the Euphrates to the Tigris. And we believe that that prophecy will not find its complete realization until the thousand-year kingdom. And we're kind of living within Christendom and Christianity that really doesn't care about land. I mean, who cares about real estate? God cares. And there are parts of the Bible that says God looks over the land every single day, year-round in the calendar. His eyes never leave it. And so you have to have, as a Christian, if you take the Bible seriously, a place in time where God is going to fulfill these land promises. The angelic manifestations bracket Jacob leaving the land to go to Haran and Jacob later returning to the land. The land, as far as God is concerned, is a big deal. I used to not think this way as a Christian. I used to think, well, it's just about spiritual things and the forgiveness of sin and land and all that real estate. That's just Old Testament stuff. But it's interesting how your mind starts to change about issues when you read the Bible verse by verse. God says it's a big deal. Well, if God thinks it's a big deal, maybe it should be a big deal to me. And by the way, if God is going to work in history to make sure every square inch of that territory is fulfilled, that vindicates his character. And I can trust him to keep promises that he has made to me as a Gentile Christian. Some of them were on the board or the screen earlier with our missionary presenter, Romans chapter 8. He put up a verse that says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, why should I believe that? I believe it because it relates to God's character. And I know God's character is completely upright and trustworthy because he keeps every single promise he's ever made, including real estate. If I can trust him with real estate, then I can trust him with... Trials and tribulations cannot separate me from the love of God. You start to play little games with the Bible. Oh, this is not important. Oh, that's just Old Testament stuff. You know, what, you know the pastor of one of the largest churches in America, uh, Andy Stanley, I don't mind calling out his name, has said we need to, as Christians, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, for starters, when the early church turned the world upside down in the book of Acts, can you please explain to me what testament they were using? They were using what we call the Old Testament because that's all they had. They didn't have a New Testament yet. And if you start saying, well, let's just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, then I guess that means God is really not going to be faithful to keep these real estate promises. And if God is not going to be faithful to keep his real estate promises, how can you trust anything he said anywhere? How do I trust John 3, verse 16? Or Romans 8? I don't want to unhitch from the Old Testament. I want the full counsel of the word of God. 
Because the full counsel of the Word of God is a vindication of who God is. It's a lot like attorneys, you know, with arguing in front of a jury. You know what they try to do? They try to just find one little area where there's a problem or a contradiction in someone's testimony. They don't have to discredit everything the witness says. Just one little point. Because the attorneys are smart enough to understand that when the jury is deliberating and they're weighing the different testimonies, maybe if so-and-so is wrong on this little point, they're wrong on this other point, and this other point, and this other point. That's what disturbs me about a mindset that says, let's unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You're throwing out the character of God. And if the character of God is suspect, how can I trust anything he's ever said? So land means land, and it will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And so what did Jacob see here? He had a dream, and behold, a ladder or a stairway was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What Jacob saw is... Heaven and earth, a connection between the two. Man can have access to heaven. That's what he saw. Now, Jesus in the New Testament referenced this account. It says in John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Speaking of Christ's being deity, the ability to see things, Outside of human range. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you on the fig tree, do you believe? You will, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're impressed because I saw you under the fig tree? I mean, because I saw you under the fig tree, you know exactly who I am and you're willing to exercise faith in me? You're going to see bigger things than these. You're going to see Jacob's stairway. You're going to see a connection between earth and heaven. Jesus is sort of, you know, bowled over, impressed with the faith of Nathaniel. And what Jesus is saying is you ain't seen nothing yet. You stick around. You keep following me. You're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see a connection between earth and heaven. And of course, what Jesus is referring to is you're going to see him 
who connects earth and heaven. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what you're going to see, Nathaniel. You're going to figure out who I am, and you're going to figure out that I came into this world to connect earth to heaven, just like Jacob's stairway. Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Who is qualified to function as a mediator between God and man? I mean, who is qualified to function as a mediator? And you know what a mediator is. Brings two parties together. Who in the world is qualified to function as a mediator between earth and heaven itself? Who can qualify to be a mediator between God and man? There's only one person that can pull it off. The God-man. Jesus Christ. In our doctrine of the hypostatic union, we believe that Jesus was 100% God. He's always been that way. But at the point of the virgin conception, what was added to 100% deity was humanity. At the virgin conception, don't get the idea that there was a subtraction. There was no subtraction. There was an addition. A lot of people think, well, Jesus uh, pulled off the God coat and put on the man coat. Completely errant understanding. What happened at the point of the virgin conception is eternally existent deity, which has always been. There never was a time in which he was not. As the eternally existent second member of the Trinity What was added was 100% humanity. And Jesus became what the Greek in John 1 calls the monogenes. Mono, as in monopoly, one. Genos, as in species or kind, one of a kind. The God-man. That's why it's sort of disturbing when you hear people say, oh, there are many paths other than Christ. I mean, I'm glad you found enlightenment in your guru. But I have my guru over here, and he's not Jesus. As if you can get to God the Father through another source. There's only one person that can bridge heaven and earth, God and man, and that's the God-man. I mean, a pastor is not a God-man. An elder board is not a God-man. The the person that led you to Christ is not a God-man. They're just servants. Angels are not God-men. Only Jesus is. The monogenes. One of a kind. Nathaniel, you're impressed because I saw you under the fig tree. You stick around. Because you're going to receive greater revelation than that. 
you're going to be introduced to the God-man. The man who is qualified as both God and man to do what exactly Jacob's stairway was doing, bridge the gap between heaven and earth. The book of Job, by the way, what is the oldest book of the Bible? The book of Job, written probably six centuries before the book of Genesis was ever written by Moses. Job had a lot of problems, amen? I mean, when I get to heaven, he's the first guy I'm going to seek out. Now, now you guys, you can line up behind Paul and Peter and Daniel. I'm looking for Job because I want to I want to understand what it was like when he was walking through all of his problems, which were huge, as you know, from the book of Job. But Job says something in the oldest book of the Bible. In Job 9, verses 32 through 33. He says, for he is he, that's God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job said, you know, with all of my problems, I wish I could just get into heaven and and." Advocate my case before God. But he kind of, in those verses, shrugs and throws up his hands and says, shrugs his shoulders, throws up his hands and says, but that's impossible because God is God and I'm just a man. What I need is an umpire. What I need is a mediator who can lay his hands upon both of us. Who's the both of us? Me and God, and be my advocate. Job, in the oldest book of the Bible, says, I wish I wish I had one. The book of Job ends, and the rest of the Bible answers Job's problem. There is a redeemer. There is a mediator. There is someone who is qualified to lay his hands on both. And that's the God-man, Jesus Christ, the monogenes, the one of a kind. So, Nathaniel, you're so impressed that I saw you under the fig tree. Boy, wait till you come into the full understanding of who I am. I'm the answer to Job's problem. I'm the answer to the whole human race's problem. Because I am the God-man that can bridge both. He goes on here in verses 13 through 15, and what begins to happen is he, in this dream, has the covenant that God gave to Abraham reconfirmed. You have a divine identification, verse 13, and then four covenant promises, second half of verse 13 into verse, uh, all the way through verse 15. Notice verse 13. And behold, this is the dream, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the God of your father Abraham 
and the God of Isaac. So at the top of the staircase is God himself in what is called the Shekinah glory of God. And then what is at the bottom of the staircase is humanity. Jacob. Now, a lot of people will look at this and they say, aha, there's a, there's an error in the Bible. He calls here Abraham Jacob's father when Abraham really wasn't Jacob's father. Abraham would be Jacob's grandfather, if I have that right. But the truth of the matter is father in the Bible can be used as an ancestor. So given that reality, there is no mistake He also identifies himself, God does, as the God of Isaac. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, is now walking with you, Jacob. And in the process, he makes Jacob four promises. He reminds him of the covenant that God had originally made with Abraham. The first promise is land. Verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land, this is in Bethel, in Canaan still, the land on which I will give to you and to your descendants. You'll notice how the land is being reemphasized here. In the Abrahamic covenant, four things are promised, land, Seed and blessing, the land here is being amplified. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28 of the Jewish people in the last days says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. You see that? Ezekiel would have been a lousy Political commentator on CNN. Because when you watch CNN, what they want you to believe is the Jewish people are living in someone else's land. But that's not what the Bible says. I will bring you back into your own land. The Jewish people are there because God put them there. And God gave them certain promissory obligations in the process. The second promise here is seed. Verse 14, your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. It's interesting that in these promises of seed, sometimes the Jewish people are analogized to the stars, which can't be counted. Sometimes they're analogized to the sand of the seashore, which can't be numbered. And here they're analogized to the dust of the earth, which can't be counted. Innumerable descendants. And they're going to spread out to the four points of the compass. Which means this guy's got to get married. He doesn't have a wife yet. So we know how the story's going to end. He's going to go to Haran. He's going to meet the right woman from her and Jacob. We don't know her name yet. We're going to learn it's Rachel. Are going to come the 12 tribes. 
So it's interesting that in this promise is a promise of a future wife, which he had allegedly been sent to Haran to find. In other words, we know how the story with the marriage is going to happen. And also, what's promised here is as the nation of Israel is raised up, it will be a blessing to the Gentiles. God did not bless the nation of Israel just to bless Israel. God's purpose is to bless the nation of Israel, which will have a spillover effect to the rest of the world. That's how the blessings of God work. And and there are people within the sound of my voice that are radically blessed by God. I mean, every person in here has three blessings. You have time, talent, and treasure of different quantities, but you have it. I mean, there's people within the sound of my voice that can do things by way of talent that no one else in the room can do. And you have to ask yourself at some point, well, why did God give you that talent? God's purpose in every blessing is to use you as a vehicle to bless someone else. That's what spiritual gifts are about. When when God blessed me with the gift of being a teacher, He had in mind all of the people that would be edified through that spiritual gift. I mean, this is not just... your, Your blessings is not just for you. Enjoyment of spiritual gifts and blessings is is probably part of it, but that's not the whole picture. God blesses people so that they can be a blessing to other people. That's why God blessed the nation of Israel. That, That was his whole purpose. You see it there. Second part of verse 14. In you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in you... And in your descendants shall all families of the earth be blessed. That goes right back to what God said to Abraham, then Abram in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And is that not an abject reality today? I mean, look at what we have today in the year 2023. We have three major blessings. We've got a Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got a book, the Bible. And we've got a promise of a future kingdom. And when you look at these very carefully, you'll discover that had God not worked strategically through the Jewish people, we wouldn't have this book. You know, I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and I can't find a single Southern Baptist author in the Bible. (laughs) Or a Presbyterian author. They're all Jewish. The only one they even debate anymore is Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts. But, you know, at the end of the day, it could be proven that he's Jewish too. After all, he was a a doctor, so (laughs) that, that would fit. Not to be overly stereotypical. And then Jesus Christ himself was Jewish. Jesus also was not a member of a Protestant denomination. I mean, Jesus wasn't even a member of a Bible church that I can tell. He was Jewish to the core. And then the coming kingdom, where is that going to be located? Washington, D.C.? I sure hope not. 
It's going to be headquartered in the city of Jerusalem. This is what God said would happen. And it has happened. And it will continue to happen. He continues on there into uh, verse uh, 14. Multiplication of seed. I'll bless the world through you. And then you go down to verse 15 and he makes Jacob some personal promises. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Look at, look at these blessings here. First of all, I'll be with you. Do you realize that as a Christian, no matter what you're going through right now, God is with you? Hebrews uh, 13 and verse 5, I will never leave you for, nor forsake you. Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The book of Proverbs says a man of many friends comes to ruin. Be careful about accumulating too many friends on social media because the Bible says a man of many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way, didn't he? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace and said, I thought we threw three people in. I see a fourth who looks like the Son of God. That's Jesus as he walks us through the different trials of life. Do you know Jesus right now is inside of you through his Holy Spirit? And he's going to be inside of you for how long? You're on probation, so you better act right or he's going to yank yank it out. No, that's not what the Bible says. It says forever. I do not know how people who think you can lose your salvation would handle a verse like that. And they don't handle it like most people. They just ignore things that contradict their presuppositions. God's presence, and then what else is Jacob promised? God's protection. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17 says, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. God, speaking to Abram, said, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. A shield is protection. Your reward will be very great. Do you understand that as a child of God, absolutely nothing is able to touch you without God's permissive will? All of the weapons formed against you cannot prosper unless God allows it. And when God does allow it, he must have a purpose in it. We have to learn to walk understanding the protective 
power of God. Now we're back to real estate again. We're back to land. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to some other place. Doesn't say that. I'll bring you back to this land. What land would that be? That would be, that would be Canaan. Boy, that promise there, God bringing the Jewish people back to the land. Do you understand that God has done this multiple times? The nation was in Egypt for 400 years and God brought them back to the same land. Book of Joshua. Then the nation went 350 miles to the east, modern day Iraq, to a place called Babylon, and they were there 70 years, and God brought them right back into the same land. And then God sends the nation of Israel post AD 70 into worldwide dispersion. And then God says, do you think I can do it a third time? And most of Christendom says, nah, those aren't literal promises. Replacement theology... That's just spiritual stuff that's been transferred to the church. Augustine started to teach that in the 4th century. Most of Christianity today still believes that. And God says, just watch me. And he recycles the nation of Israel after 2,000 years of dispersion right back into their same land. It's happening right now in your headlines every single day. These are things we need to understand. God is the only one at the end of the day you can trust. His character is such that he cannot lie. Your friends will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your pastor will let you down. Your elder board will let you down. God won't because of who he is. And then these personal promises of Jacob to Jacob in there. In verse 15, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Not only am I promising my presence, not only am I promising my prediction, not protection, not only am I promising a return to the land, but I'm committed to you until you die. And even when you die, absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Do you understand that as long as you're alive, this side of eternity, there's something God wants to do in and through your life? You can take that right to the bank. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul the Apostle says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, Until the day of Christ Jesus. God doesn't start projects and then get bored and work on something else. I'm that way. You come to my house, there's unfinished projects, halfway read books, everywhere. In fact, even the Christmas tree, getting that fixed up (laughs) was sort of problematic. But God is not that way. What God starts, he completes. Has God done something good in your life? I hope so. I hope you're saved. I hope you have the Holy Spirit. I hope you're regenerated. 
And then Monday, when you're thinking about sinning and the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, don't do that, rather than getting annoyed at the Spirit, you say, well, praise the Lord. That's what you said would happen. What you started, you're completing. And you're, you're going to keep working in my life until it's time to be in the presence of the Lord through glorification. Acts uh, 13.36, this is an NIV citation. It says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. You'll notice that David did not fall asleep and was not buried with his ancestors until he had completed his purpose in his generation. I believe that the child of God's life is indestructible until God says, I'm done. And if it's done, that's a good thing. Because absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. What a a series of promises. By the way, these are obviously unconditional. Because this is the guy that was involved in deception in the prior chapter. Right? So Jacob obviously didn't earn these promises. He didn't you know, like do something to maintain these promises. These are promises coming directly from God to Jacob. In the book of 2 Timothy, and I'll close with this, chapter 2. In verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he's going to rip out the carpet from under me. That's not what it says. <clears throat> if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's the nature of of God. He stepped out of eternity into time to be the God-man, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. He's the only one that can do it, as we've explained. And we invite everyone within the sound of my voice who hears that to respond to the only condition that God ever gave to the human race to receive this blessing, and that is faith alone. You trust in what he has done. Christianity is not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program where the Spirit convicts the lost sinner of their need to trust Christ, and they respond through their own free will as they come under conviction. to the promises of Jesus Christ. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation who came into our world to be the God-man, to bridge that impossible gap between earth and and heaven itself. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray?
Father, we're grateful for this ancient account 2,000 years before the time of Christ as you dealt with Jacob. And yet the things that it, it reveals to us about who we are, what we need, who you are, and what solution you provided. We're grateful, Lord, for this understanding. Help us to walk it out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.